the shadow of the cross. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the comfort that it brings us. Thank you for the peace that we have with you. And thank you that we, while we were still sinners, you died for us. You demonstrated your love for us and that while we're still in our messes, still in our sins, still in our idols, still in the messes we'd made for ourselves, you came and you saved us, you ripped us out of the death of our sin and you placed us into the righteousness of Jesus. I think of the truth that in Christ alone, my hope is found. It's the only hope we have is in Jesus Christ. Thank you that we can stand firmly on the cross, that we can rest not in our own works, not in our own righteousness, not in our own holiness, as we're about to preach about, but rest in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you for those truths. God, I pray that we would be a church that proclaims Christ the entirety of our existence. That every week that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, not on ourselves, not on our culture, not on our sin, not on the issues in our world, but fix our eyes on Jesus. Lord, help us. Lord, I pray for the areas in our lives that we've lost sight of that. We've gotten overcome. Lord, I pray that you would help us to fix our eyes, our gaze on Christ again. Lord, we pray for churches in our city this morning that are preaching your word. I pray they would preach faithfully. God, we pray that um, we as pastors and preachers would not be tempted to twist your word to say what we want it to mean, but that we would preach faithfully and truthfully, Holy Spirit, that you would work in our city through the preaching of the word this morning through worship. God, we pray for revival our country and our nation, our world. We also pray, Jesus, you come quickly. We can't wait to see the day when you return, make all things new. So we love you, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Y'all remain standing. I know. It's a little different. Grab your Bibles. Uh, we read in Nehemiah 8 uh, a couple of chapters ago that when Ezra read from the book of the law, all the people stood. All right, so we're not going to do this every week, uh, but this week I want to do it just as a sign. The, the, the symbol was respect and awe for God's word and an anticipation to hear what he has to say. Um, also, this is a long passage, so I'm going to have you all stand with me for it, so I'm not the only one standing. Um, so uh, as you're turning there, Nehemiah 13, I encourage you to turn there in the Bible. Um, we're just going to start in verse 4, but what has just happened is that for 10 chapters, we've been hearing about this revival that is happening in Jerusalem, where they're rebuilding the temple, reinstating services, rebuilding the wall, they're re-covenanting themselves to God. It is amazing what God is doing. And then Nehemiah, on this high note, he leaves and he goes back to um, Susa uh, to work for Artaxerxes again. And he's there for about 10 years And then he asks Artaxerxes, hey man, can I go back to Jerusalem to see how things are? And so he says, yeah, sure. And so he goes back to Jerusalem, and chapter 13 is what he finds when he gets there. And chapter 13 is divided into three sections. These are three different things that he finds when he arrives in Jerusalem. So start with verse 4 in me in Nehemiah chapter 13. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came back to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashiv had done for Tobiah preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture to buy out of the chamber. And then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. 
I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. So the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled, each to his own field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed his treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and their assistant Hanan the son of Zachir, son of Mataniah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I've done for the house of my God and for his service. So that was the first thing he found, right? That the grain offering was no longer taken up, and then in its chamber now dwells Tobiah, who is, we'll find out in a little bit, a very wicked man. Let's keep reading. Verse 15. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us in this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice, but I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay my hands on you. From that time they did not come in on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. The second thing he finds, they're disregarding the Sabbath day and they're trading on the Sabbath, which is against the law, and they're working on the Sabbath day. This is the third thing he finds, verse 23. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and I cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the nations there was no king like him, and he, Solomon, was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. All right, you have a seat. That was depressing, right? I mean, I don't know if you were here last week. Andrew called me Joy. Um, this is not the type of sermon Joy wants to preach, okay? So I want to go ahead and tell you that. But Andrew seems to schedule me on these repentant, sin, heavy sermons. And so that's where we are. But... Ten years, um, things have been going great. Uh, 
they, or for 10 chapters, things have been going great. Like the Israel had repented. Um, Jerusalem was, was worshiping God again. The wall was rebuilt. Um, Eliashiv was overseeing all of these sacrifices and all this worship. And things were going well. And then Nehemiah leaves for 10 years, and he comes back to a compromised people, right? After this huge moment of revival, the people have strayed again away from the Lord and have backslid. And not only this, but Eliashiv, the high priest, He was the man, I don't know if you remember, who laid the first stone on the wall. He was the leader of the religious life of the community of God. He was the one that Nehemiah left Jerusalem in the hands of spiritually. Eliashiv has backslidden, compromised, and fallen. But when you think about it, it's not just Eliashiv, is it? Like when you look throughout the Old Testament scripture, this is a picture of almost every story that we get over and over and over again. The people of God starting well, Starting strong, obeying God, rah, rah, we're going to do it, and then slowly backsliding throughout the entirety of their lives. It started with Adam, right? Started well, named the animals, rejoiced in Eve, was honoring God, walking with God. Then what does he do? Sins against the Lord, eats the fruit of the tree, and and separates himself from God. And then we have Noah, man of God, righteous man. He builds a boat in a desert, okay? Talk about faith. And he has all these animals come on the boat. Talk about crazy. Then he closes it up. Man of faith, the rains come, he remains faithful, the, the earth dries, he gets drunk in a cave and commits sexual immorality. Starts strong, ends well. Moses led God's people out of Egypt. He did 10 plagues, he was faithful, he led them through the Red Sea, he led them through the wilderness for 40 years. At the end of the wilderness, actually he's probably about 80 years old, God tells him, hey, speak to this rock because the people are thirsty and I'll provide water. And Moses, in some power play, strikes the rock, water comes out, disobeys the Lord, and begins to compromise in his faith. And then we have King David, man after God's own heart, set to replace Saul. He's the one that the Messiah was named the son of David. Starts really strong, doesn't even want to touch Saul in the cave. He could have killed him. He just cuts off a corner of his robe. He is so um, against murder and murdering God's anointed. But what does he do? Years later, he commits adultery with Bathsheba, kills Bathsheba's husband. Then he allows Absalom to just run rampant in his home, his own son. He doesn't take control of his house. Then Solomon, his son, starts strong. We just read about him. He was a man God loved, beloved of God. And yet towards the end of his reign as king, he begins to collect these foreign wives. He has a huge harem, and they lead him astray. And all the kings, we have Hezekiah, we have Jehoshaphat, we have Uzziah, Azariah. All these kings do the same thing. They start strong. They rid the kingdom of idols. They begin to worship Yahweh again. And then towards the end of their life, they begin to compromise. They begin to backslide away from the Lord. Compromise is not the exception in the Christian life. It's the norm. Just... Go ahead, we're, we're already in it. We're the bleak picture we're painting here, right? Let me just say, compromise is not the exception in the Christian life. It is the norm. In 1 Corinthians 10, um, 11 through 12, Paul says this. He's talking about the Old Testament. He says, now these things, what we just read in the whole Old Testament, happened to them as an example. But they were written down in our, in our Bibles for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So Paul is saying, all, all that we read in here happened as an example. So the stories we read about David and Eliashiv and, and Jerusalem and Moses, all of them were written, happened as an example. They were written down for our instruction. What does Paul think we need to learn from them? Next verse, verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. 
And my goal this morning, I, I, as much as I want to preach a happy sermon this morning, I, I am burdened for our church. I am burdened for myself. I do not want to be a man that starts strong, starts well, does well. I'm, I'm, I'm in it for the long run. And then towards the end of my life, I begin to compromise. I begin to backslide. I begin to fade. I begin to think, I'm a pastor. Like, I'm fine. Like, I read my Bible. My, my, I sing with my kids. I come to church. I preach sermons. Like, I'm going to be okay. Because that's not the case. We need to take heed. And I don't want you to be men and women and, and high schoolers and middle schoolers who think that you're okay. Right? You go to... CBC for crying out loud. And we preach through the Bible like, I'm fine. No. The Bible over and over tells us we need to take heed on our lives. I want us to be a church that in 30 years, 40 years, 50 years is still worshiping God with integrity. Still preaching his word with integrity. I want you to be men and women and families who are pursuing the Lord in 50 years. However many years you have left in your life, I want you to end strong. And so I want to learn from this. How do we not step into compromise? How do we not live a compromised life as we go through the entirety of our lives? So before I jump in, I want to ask, what do I mean by a compromised life? When I look at Nehemiah 13, I don't see a people who has jumped headlong into heinous sin. I don't see a people that's done a 180 and turned away from God. I don't see a people that has denied Jesus Christ. I don't see a people, any of that. I don't see that at all. I see a people who's become compromised. I see a nation that is slowly backslidden. There are small things like the Sabbath day the grain offering, who they're marrying, small things in their life that they've begun to compromise on, and yet the situation gets worse and worse. It's kind of like a crack in your windshield. Anybody have a crack in your windshield? Right? Some dump truck kicks up a rock and bam, right in your windshield. When is that windshield compromised? When the crack is bigger than a, anybody remember? Quarter, right? An inch, a quarter, right? Man, the first service, everyone knew that. I don't know about you guys. If you call your glass experts, say Flight Auto, they'll say, is it bigger than a quarter? And you're like, I don't know. Like, go check. And you'll look at it, and if it's bigger than a quarter, they'll say, your windshield's compromised. We're going to have to replace the whole thing, okay? Because it looks fine. It's just a small crack, right? All it takes is a change in the weather, a fender bender or whatever, and then the windshield shatters, right? It's a small compromise. But let me ask you, in your life, the little nicks in your windshield, the cracks in your windshield, where do you think Satan is going to attack you? Right there. He's going to start tapping at that crack, right? He's going to tap at it. He's going to throw little pebbles at it, right? And he's going to hit that crack over and over and over again. It might not be a big deal. It's a small crack. It's fine. And yet that compromise in your life is going to grow, and it's going to grow, and it's going to grow. And that's what we see here. Over 10 years, this nation went from revival and holiness to turning against the Lord because of the compromise in their lives. My goal this morning is that we see how do we avoid that? How do we avoid living compromised lives in our Christian faith. And so what I see in this passage is I see two steps in all three of these instances, two steps to a compromised life, okay? So I'm going to start with the first one. The first one is an apathy towards what is holy. If you're a note taker, write that down. The first step to a compromised life is an apathy towards what is holy. Look at Nehemiah 13, verse 5. So Eliashiv prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering. Okay, stop there. Previously. Why previously? Why weren't they keeping the grain offering in there anymore? We just read at the end of Nehemiah 12 that they had just cleaned out this chamber and started taking up the grain offering again because it was holy to the Lord. And yet here, 10 years later, we find that it's no longer kept there. What's going on? Eliashiv no longer regarded the grain offering as holy. We actually hear about the grain offering in Leviticus chapter 6. It says this. I'm going to read from the law of the Lord about the grain offering. This is the law of the grain offering. 
The sons of Aaron shall offer it before the Lord in front of the altar. And one shall take from it a handful of the fine flour of the grain offering and its oil and frankincense that is on the grain offering and burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the rest of it, so they burned part of it, and the rest of it are for Aaron and his sons to eat. It shall be eaten unleavened in a holy place. In the court of the tent of meeting they shall eat it. It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their portion of my food offering. So that's what Nehemiah was talking about. He said the Levites and the priests, they had to go back to their fields because they weren't receiving their portion. What does that mean? They weren't getting fed. So the people who were supposed to lead in worship weren't getting fed by this grain offering, so they had to go home. So that's why they'd forsaken the worship in the temple. Let me keep reading. It is a thing most holy, this grain offering. Most holy. Some things God calls holy. This he calls most holy. Like the sin offering and the guilt offering. Every male among the children of Aaron may eat of it as decreed forever throughout your generations from the Lord's food offering. And whatever touches them shall become holy. Why was this grain offering holy? Because God said it was. He said, this offering means something. It is holy unto me. And how do you keep it holy? You keep it holy by taking it up and giving it to the Levites for them to eat. It is most holy. And yet Eliashiv, who his whole job was to make sure that this was happening, he becomes apathetic. He doesn't care anymore. He begins to slip. At first it was probably like, man, those Levites can provide for themselves. They don't need this grain offering. And then it's like, man, that storehouse, like we could use that for so much better things than storing grain and frankincense. I mean, come on. Then slowly he begins to grow apathetic until eventually we find the storehouse is empty. The grain offering is not getting taken care of. It's not getting taken up. The priests are all gone to their homes because they're not getting provided for. And they've slipped into apathy towards holiness. It happens again um, on the Sabbath. Nehemiah 13, read on the Sabbath day. Look in verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in heaps of grain, loading them on donkeys, wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. You also see traders and merchants and and people who are buying and selling goods on the Sabbath day. Why is that a problem? Because God has called the Sabbath what? Holy. Holy. Look in Exodus You don't have to look, I'll turn there and read it for you. Exodus 20, this is what the law says. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it, what? Holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy, right? Sabbath day is holy. How do you keep it holy? Not working. That is what God called the people of Israel to do. And so they weren't, they weren't to carry any loads. They weren't to put loads on their livestock. They weren't supposed to put loads on their kids. They weren't supposed to let the Tyrians, who were sojourners in their gates, work on the Sabbath day. And yet the Sabbath is being defiled. No big deal, right? One day in seven, it should be fine. But God called that day holy, and they weren't honoring the Lord with it. The problem, it becomes a problem in our lives when we begin to take the holy things of God, the things that God's called holy, begin to grow apathetic towards them. And here's our issue. Our issue is that we typically don't aim at holiness, do we? We typically aim at not sinning. Right with me on that? Let's say that again. We, we typically don't aim at holiness. We aim at not sinning. Well, that sounds like a pretty good goal, right? Not sinning? Like, that's the Christian life. Like, don't sin, right? No. Like, that's not the Christian life at all. God did not say, you shall not sin because I don't sin. God said, you shall be holy 
For I am what? Holy. We are called to holiness. Let me give you an example. Uh, it's like the difference between the way that my wife, Elizabeth, cleans and the way I clean, okay? Um, so Elizabeth cleans to make things clean, okay? Pretty intuitive. I clean to make things not dirty. Anybody with me? Anybody clean to anything that's not dirty? Right? So when Elizabeth vacuums the floor, she vacuums the floor, all of it, twice, okay? When she sweeps, she sweeps all of the floor. When she swiffers, she swiffers it all. When she washes dishes, she washes all the dish, right? It makes it clean. When I vacuum, I vacuum the dirt up, right? So I vacuum here and vacuum there and vacuum there. And then 20 minutes later, I see some more dirt. So I have to pull out the vacuum again and I vacuum there. Right? That's what I do. When I wash dishes, you can come over to my house this afternoon. When I wash dishes, I just clean, I look at it, turn it over, clean it off. I stick it over there, right? And what inevitably happens is I'll go to dry it off later and there's like dried oatmeal smeared on the bottom. It's like, oh man. And so I have to wash it again, right? Let me ask you this. Who wears themselves out more cleaning, me or my wife? Me, right? It is way more exhausting, takes way more effort to make something not dirty than to make it clean. And I'm, and I'm a pretty miserable cleaner, right? Because I'm just so focused and I keep finding dirt everywhere, right? I don't know why. I just keep finding it everywhere. That, that is what we do in the Christian life, isn't it? We focus so much on our sin and getting all the bad things out of our life where God has said, no, 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 that's not where your focus is. Focus on holiness. Focus on me. Focus on righteousness. I have made you holy. That is our aim in the Christian life. But what happens is we begin to grow apathetic towards holiness. Let me tell you this. If you don't aim at holiness, then you will always see obedience to God as a burden and a list of rules rather than a wonderful gift and a new way of living. Let me say that again. If you don't aim at holiness, you will always see obedience to God as a burden and a list of rules rather than a wonderful gift and a new way of living. That's the call of the Christian life, right? And most of us mope around trying not to sin, and yet God has called us to something better. He's called us to this glorious way of life, a life that we were created to live, of walking with God in holiness, of being set apart for his glory. That is the aim. But it's not just us. It's not just our lives. What did it say about the grain offering? Everything that touched it was made holy. In the same way for you, God has called you holy. He has called you most holy. You are set apart for his glory. And everything that you touch, everything under your roof, everything under your responsibility is called holy unto the Lord. God has called everything that you have, everything that you own, holy. You're like King Midas, right? Turns to gold. Everything under your responsibility is holy. So if you're a Christian, that means your marriage is holy. It means your kids are holy. It means your finances are holy. It means your thoughts are holy. It means your words are holy. It means your emotions are holy. It means your home is holy. Your car is holy. Your free time, holy. All of it is holy to the Lord because God has called you holy. Let me take a time for reflection for you. Where are you at with that? Like, Where are you at with preserving the holiness of your thought life? Like what you watch, what you listen to, what you read. Where are you at in preserving the holiness of your emotion? The way that you allow your anger to boil up or your envy to boil over or your lust to come up inside of you. Where are you at in preserving the holiness of your home? Um, The influences you let in and out of your house, the things you allow your kids or yourself to watch and listen to, where are you at in preserving that? Do you see that as holy? Where are you at in preserving the holiness of your finances? 
Where are you at in preserving the holiness of your business? Are you cutting loopholes and, and trying to find ways around things? Or are you a person of integrity? Where are you at in preserving God's holiness in your life? Let me tell you something. When you see the presence of something unholy in your life, when you see sin in your life, when you see worldliness in your life, whether there's a struggle with sin and over-desire for an idol, it did not start there. It didn't start with the sin. It started with an apathy towards holiness. It started with you getting your gaze off of Jesus and looking at yourself and becoming apathetic about what God called holy. So what do we do with this? Okay, just told you the problem, right? And that's my prayer is that God would reveal some of the issues in your life, some of the cracks on your windshield. But what do I do with this? What is my hope? How, like, how do I handle this? Let's learn from Nehemiah. I want you to look with me at his prayers to the Lord. So Nehemiah 13, his first prayer is in verse 14. After he casts Tobiah out of the temple, he cleanses um, the temple. He says, remember me, O my God, concerning this. And do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Look at the second prayer. In verse 22, after he cleanses the city and he makes the Sabbath holy again, he says this, Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. And then again in verse 29, Remember them, O God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. And at the end, he says, Remember me, O my God, for good. Let me ask you, what is the emotional note in those prayers? It's fear. It's fear. He is, he is afraid. Like, verse 22, Remember this in my favor and spare me. Like, it's almost as if Nehemiah is standing here and he's just seen all this unholiness, all this wickedness around him, and he is staying as far back as possible. He's saying, hey, I, I know you see this, God, but spare me because w- when I came here, I didn't take part in any of it. I've separated myself from it. I'm not, I've not gone near it. I've done everything in my power to make this nation holy again. Would you spare me? It's fear. Let me tell you, that is how we combat an apathy towards holiness in our lives is a fear of God. In our nation does not fear God anymore. There is no fear of God in our nation. There's no fear of God in the church anymore. We have lost the fear of God, and we think, well, God doesn't care. He doesn't care what I do. He doesn't care what I think. He doesn't care what I listen to. He doesn't care about how I live my life. And then we, we do something sinful, and we don't get struck by lightning. We're like, I guess it's fine. And we begin to grow in apathy towards holiness, and the way that we restore a high regard for God's holiness in our lives is to grow in our fear of God. Not, not fear of him as some tyrant. Fear of him like a, a son fears a father. A healthy fear. A fear out of relationship, but a fear that knows that, that my father is going to uphold the rules of this house. That he really cares about our holiness. God cares about our holiness. Will you step in to a fear of God? That is how we begin to live an uncompromised life, is nurturing a fear of God in our souls. So will you do that? Will you begin to nurture a fear of God in your soul? That's not it. We have another step into the compromised life. So this is the second step. It it always starts with an apathy towards the holy, but then it moves into the second one, which is an allowance of what is unholy. We allow what is unholy into our lives. Nehemiah 13, um, 4 and 5, we have Eliashiv, who lets Tobiah into the temple. Y'all remember Tobiah? 
Tobiah's come up all over Ezra and Nehemiah. Tobiah, originally we saw him, he was trying to sneak in with the people of God, but he had not converted to Judaism. He was still living as an Ammonite. He had not let go of his idols. He had not become a full Jew. He was an Ammonite man. And then we see him later. He is opposing with Sanballat the building of the wall. Remember, they're trying to kill Nehemiah. They're trying to get him out to the field. They're trying to get him to go into the temple. They're trying to do all these things to discourage the people. Tobiah is an opponent of the Lord. He is a wicked, wicked man. And yet we find him. Nehemiah comes back and he finds Tobiah inside the temple. Like in the holy temple, Tobiah, this wicked man, is in there. Why is he there? Because Eliashiv invited him to be there. Eliashiv literally goes and gets Tobiah and brings him there. Right? Like, he does it on his own. It's by invitation. Let me tell you, sometimes when we talk about sin and worldliness in our lives, we talk about it as, this, as if it's this thing that came out of nowhere. Right? It's like, man, I was walking along and then boom! Like, this thing came out of nowhere. Like, this temptation to lust or this, or this man, this, this grip on greed in my life or, or this, this show that just popped up on Netflix. Right? It came out of nowhere. We talk about it as if we get ambushed by sin. But let me tell you that most of the sin in your life is there because you invited it to be there. And it's still there because you're inviting it to stay. Okay, let me say that again. Most of the sin and the worldliness in your life is there because you invited it to be there. And it's still there because you invited it to stay. We keep on inviting these things into our lives. Why? Because we have lost a grip on the holiness of God and the holiness of our lives. It's the same thing in Nehemiah 13, 16 with the Sabbath day. Why were the foreign merchants in Jerusalem on the Sabbath? Now, for us, we're like, man, like, we don't even get that. Like, Chick-fil-A is the only restaurant that closes on the Sabbath. But there, like, if you were to go into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day in Nehemiah's time, you wouldn't hear anything but singing and scripture reading. You wouldn't see anyone on the streets. There would be no shop lights open. People would be very careful. They would have made their meals the day before. No cooking, no cleaning, no anything. They would have been resting all day long to honor the Lord. There would be no livestock moving around. The foreigners would be zipped up in their homes. Like everyone would have been still to honor the Sabbath day. It would have been eerie for us in our culture. That is what the Sabbath keeping was for them. And yet what we find is, is now it is so bad that there are merchants from other cities coming in to, to tempt some Jews into shoe shopping on their Sabbath, right? Like that's what happened. Why are they there? They're there because they looked over and they're like, well, they don't care anymore. They don't care about the Sabbath. It used to be a shoe merchant comes into the, Jerusalem on the Sabbath and he's like, man, I'm, I'm selling nothing today. No one's leaving their homes. And yet now it's like, man, I can make some money, right? This is, this is a good racket. And so they start coming in. I know I just said that sin and worldliness is in your life by invitation, but actually sometimes sin and worldliness comes in through opportunity. Sometimes you didn't actually directly invite it, but, but Satan saw an opportunity in your life, a chink in your armor, a way that you're not vigilant in your life about guarding you and your family against worldliness and sin. Let me tell you where I see this the most often is in media. Social media, movies, um, all of it, is, is, that, is that what happens is, is we have this presence in our life and we're mindlessly scrolling, we're mindlessly watching and Satan sees that opportunity in our life and he exploits it. He comes in and he leads us astray. But it happens in every area. Satan is an opportunist. If he sees a, an area in your life you're growing apathetic, he will tap on that. He will attack it and attack it and attack it. And that's what these merchants did. They came in on the Sabbath. And let me tell you something as well. They're hard to shake. Like these merchants did not go easily. They, they were still camping out, like, like, think about this picture. They won't, Nehemiah locked the gates of Jerusalem on Friday night, 
and he's not unlocking them. They're camping out outside the gate trying to find a way in. Sin and worldliness and Satan is ruthless and relentless in trying to make its way into your life and into your family. So we have to be ruthless as we fight it. And then we have the third way that they allow what is unholy is in this intermarriage. Look with me in verse 23. And, and we've preached on this before. The issue is not intermarriage. It's the idols and, the, and the, uh, the ungodly worship that comes in through these marriages. Verse 23, In those days I saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Right? What's the big deal of that? Let's keep reading. Verse 24, And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Why does that matter? Like, why does Nehemiah care? that they can't speak Aramaic. They can't speak the language of Judah anymore. Well, it's an expression. He's basically saying it is so bad that they can't even speak the language anymore. Like, that's how bad it is. It's kind of like if I said, man, Chick-fil-A has gotten so bad, they don't even say my pleasure anymore, right? It's like, oh, boy. Like, it's gotten bad, right? That is like Chick-fil-A's hallmark is saying my pleasure. And if they don't say my pleasure, then they, they've just gone off the deep end, right? That's what he's saying here. They, they don't even speak the language. They don't know Yahweh. They don't worship in the temple. They, they don't keep the Sabbath. Like these children of these marriages are totally unholy. They have strayed away from the Lord. And there's a principle here for us. When you begin to grow apathetic towards holiness, and when you begin to allow worldliness and sin and wickedness in, in small ways into your life, you may not see it in your own life. You may not see the effects of it for years and maybe decades. Like, your life might look pretty good. People around you might say, man, he's a godly dude. He's, he's doing really well. They might look in at your family and things are well. Your, things aren't falling apart yet, but let me tell you where you will see it, in your fruit. They didn't see it in their lives, but they saw it in their children. They saw it in the fruit of their lives. Let me tell you where you will see it. You'll see it in your prayerlessness. You'll see it in your lack of knowledge and dependence on God's word. You'll see it in temptation. You'll see it in your kids. Right? If you begin to grow more unholy in your life, then the fruit of that life is going to be godless. You'll see that effect in your kids. You'll see it in your finances. You'll see it in your relationships. You will slow the fruit of your life will turn from, from ripe and good to ungodly and sinful and godless. So we need to guard our lives. And that's the reality of life, isn't it? Like we don't see, we're not, we're not machines. Like you break a machine and it immediately stops working. You, you start poisoning a plant, you don't see the effects of that for, for a long time. And that's the same with us. You begin to let poison into your life. You begin to let worldliness and sin into your life. You might not see the effects of it for years. You may be bumping along just fine. And all of a sudden, one day you look up and it's, man, I don't have the fruits of the Spirit in my life. I don't have patience or joy or love in my heart anymore. And my kids, man, they don't know God. Like, what, what is happening here? Well, it's because years before, you begin to drift and allow what is unholy in your life. And that's what happens in this passage. So let me ask you, reflect with me. Survey your life with me. What in your life right now is unholy to the Lord? Who, who are the merchants in your life, the people, the, the areas of your life that, that you're getting taken advantage of? What are, they, what are the cracks in your windshield, the areas that you are allowing sin to come in and you are being compromised? So here's the question. What do I do with this? What is the pathway to the uncompromised life in this area? Well, let's learn from Nehemiah again, right? Let's look at his response to this. Okay? He responds in three ways to each of these sin issues. Okay? The first way he responds is that he is violent. Okay? Like violent. Did you, did you see it? He is throwing furniture. Okay? 
Like, that's pretty bad. He's throwing furniture. He is yelling at merchants that are camping outside the gate saying, I'm going to lay hands on you. Like, I'm going to take you and smash you on the ground if you don't get out of here. Right? He's like a raving lunatic. And he goes in, and then we have um, verse 25. When these children that, that were um, worshiping other idols and these, these foreign wives were in, he says, I confronted them, and I cursed them, and I beat some of them, and I pulled out their hair. Right? He didn't just say he pulled their hair. He pulled it out of their scalp. Like, this man is going crazy. And then Jehoiada, it says, Jehoiada, therefore I chased him from me. Like, Nehemiah literally looks like a lunatic. He's running around pulling hair, cursing, beating people, chasing people out of his presence. The man looks crazy. Why? Because he is violent and relentless about getting sin and worldliness and unholiness out of his presence, the presence of God, and the presence of the people of God. That is our example. He doesn't wait around. He doesn't have a conversation. Like he doesn't sit down with, with Eliashiv and say, hey, man, what, what's Tobiah doing in here? No, he starts throwing furniture. He doesn't sit down with these, these men who've married these idol-worshiping wives, and he says, hey, guys, I think you need to, like, think this through a little bit. No, he starts yelling and cursing and beating and pulling. Like, he is violent on ridding the temple, his life, the people of God of this sin. Let me ask you, are you violent in removing unholy things from your life? Are you violent against your sin? Have you made war on the sin in your life? Because that is what it takes. There's no questions. You begin to get in your head about it and say, ah, like maybe this isn't that bad. Satan will have a heyday with you, right? Weaving all kinds of justifications and lies. We need to be violent with our sin. That's the first step in cleansing our life. The second step is that he speaks truth over the lies. In each one of these sections, he first violently cleanses it, and the second thing he does is he speaks truth. He goes to the leaders and he says, hey, on the Sabbath day, he says, hey, do you remember why we went into exile with Babylon? Do you remember why this city is destroyed? It's because they quit keeping the Sabbath. They didn't regard it as holy anymore. And God's anger burned at them for hundreds of years and eventually God gave them over to their sin. Do you remember that? Let's not go down that path again. He speaks truth. With the, with the marrying um, idol-worshiping wives, he says, hey, do you remember King Solomon? God loved that man. God honored him. He made him king. He was a beloved king of God's people. Do you remember what happened at the end of his life? He began collecting these wives, and they led him astray to worship idols. Don't let that happen. These people over here, they're, they're lying to you. He speaks truth over the lies. Let me ask you, are you speaking truth to your own soul? I tell you, you can't speak truth without this. You can't speak truth without knowing the word. You can't speak truth without being in the scriptures. Are you speaking truth in your life? Parents, are you speaking truth into the lives of your kids? Let me tell you, they're hearing all kinds of lies. And you cannot think that they can hear that day in and day out and not be changed by it. Are you speaking truth to your children? Are you Marriages, are you speaking truth to one another? Wives, if your husband's working, he, he is probably working in an environment that is pulling him towards competition and greed and ambition. Are you speaking truth to him? Husbands, to your wives, are you speaking truth to her about the way God sees her, about her beauty and her value? Maybe she's a stay-at-home mom with kids. Are you coming home? Are you speaking truth to your wife about how God sees her and how it's worth it and how it's, it's worth her giving her best years to pour in to little snotty-nosed three-year-olds, right? Like, are you speaking truth to one? Are you speaking truth to your friends? You have people speaking truth to you. We need to speak truth over the lies in our life. And then the third thing he does is he cleanses the space. Okay, this is kind of weird. Tobiah is taking up residence in the grain chamber, okay? I don't know if you've ever been to a grain shed before. 
For some reason, I have. It is not a clean place, okay? There's like dust everywhere. There's chaff all over the place. It's nasty in there, right? It's just used as a storage shed for grain. And yet, Tobiah, they clean it out. Tobiah moves in. A human is living in there. They throw all his furniture out. It is way more clean, I guarantee you, with Tobiah living in it than the grain. But what does Nehemiah do? He has them cleanse it after Tobiah is out. He doesn't even want the smell of Tobiah in that room. He wants that room to have nothing to do because that room is holy, right? So he cleanses us. How do we cleanse our lives from sin? Well, 1 John 1.9 says that, therefore, if anyone confesses his sin, that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We cleanse ourselves by confession, by being reconciled with God, by coming back to him and saying, God, I've, I've blown it. I've sinned, I've failed, would you please forgive me? And we look back at the cross and we see, man, God has forgiven me for this sin. I am cleansed, I am pure, I am forgiven. But so often what we do in our lives is is we actually don't ever talk with God about it. Like we sin or we mess up or we fail and we're like, ah, man, I'll do better next time. And we keep going. I'm sure God knows and he forgives me. We we blow up at our kids. It's like, oh, man, I shouldn't have done that. I'm not going to do it next time. We, we maybe, maybe see something, we look at something we shouldn't look at online, it's like, oh man, I, I'll, I'll be better next time, I'll be fine. We never actually make the step of being reconciled with God, we don't make the step of confession, and that is vital. Each one of these sections, Nehemiah, after he runs out the unholy, after he speaks the truth, he cleanses it. He makes sure that things are right with God. Because ultimately, you're not living your life to be a good moral person. You're living your life to please your Father in heaven who loves you, has called you to be his child, and has made you holy. So are you speaking truth to your soul? Are you violently removing unholy things from your life? And are you going to the Lord with confession to cleanse your life from everything displeasing? Here's the question in conclusion. Here's the question we're left with. How do we live like this? I might be able to live like this for a week or a month or a year, but for however many years you have left, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, how do I live like this? How do I be violent on my sin? How do I walk with God? How do I have a high regard for his holiness in my life for the rest of my life? Here's the reality. Ultimately, you and I are going to die with sin in our lives. You're going to die with worldliness in your life. You're going to die with unholy things. Like, we're going to die slap in the middle of God's unfinished work in us, right? You're never going to carry that to completion. Like, the only time in your life you are going to be perfectly holy is after heaven. When Christ is returned and you're with him in glory. You're going to die slap in the middle of your sin. So we need a hope beyond ourselves to be able to fight these things in our lives and to be able to walk with God. So let me ask you, did, did you notice anything any similarities between Nehemiah and anything else? When, when he threw the chairs and the furniture and the tables out of Tobiah's quarters in the temple, when he chased the merchants out, when he yelled at him, when he chased the man out of the temple, did you notice any similarities there? Jesus, right? A few days before he was crucified, Jesus went into the temple and he was disgusted. He saw people selling and buying. He saw people lying. He saw people stealing. He saw people profaning God's temple. So what does he do? It says, in his anger. He makes a whip and he drives them out. Like, imagine Nehemiah with a foaming mouth. Like, Jesus was probably worse, okay? Like, chasing people out. He's turning over tables. He's throwing people out. He's chasing out livestock. Jesus cleansed the temple. What does that mean for us? That was a symbol for what he did on the cross. It was a symbol that, that Jesus on that cross destroyed sin 
in your life, destroy death, that he is the one that cleanses you. He is the one that does the work. When he died on that cross, if you are a believer in Christ, your temple, the temple of your life is clean. You are pure. God has looked on you and said you are washed and holy and righteous unto the Lord. Peter, before Jesus was crucified, said to Jesus, will you cleanse me? Like, will you wash all of me? He's talking about his sin. And Jesus looked at Peter and he said, you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. You are already clean. And let me tell you, Christian, you are already clean because of the word, gospel word that has been spoken over you. There's been a word of pardon that no one can undo that has been spoken over your life, and you are clean. Yes, we still live with the reality of sin in our lives, but we no longer live with this record. We no longer live with this penalty. There's the presence of sin, but not the penalty of sin in our lives because Jesus has gone in before you, and he has cleansed the temple of your life, and you are holy. There's a second thing it means as well. Jesus going in and cleansing the temple is the work that the Holy Spirit does in your life. The Spirit of Jesus, if you're a Christian, dwells inside of you. You have the indwelling presence of the Spirit, and it is not up to you to cleanse your own life. We partner with God. If you rely on your own power, you're never going to do it. We trust God. That that is why our greatest weapon in killing sin is not self-control, it's prayer. Okay? Because the Holy Spirit is at work in you to sanctify you, to grow you, to grow your view of God's holiness, to rid your life of sin and worldliness. It is God's work inside of the believer. Let me just end on this. We don't kill sin in our lives to become clean, but because we are already clean. We don't grow in holiness to become holy, but because you are holy. And our work now is not to live into our cleansing, but to live out of it, right? And that's what I want to call you to this morning. You see, the people of God ultimately had lost their grip on God. They'd lost their sight of him. They quit sacrificing. They quit bringing lambs in. They quit seeing over and over again that they couldn't do the work on their own, that God had made them holy. They no longer viewed themselves as holy. So they lost a grip on their lives, and they began to drift away. Will you? Take up the hard road to the uncompromised life. Will you keep God at the forefront? Will you begin to fear God's holiness again? Will you begin to rid your life of those things that are crippling you, those cracks on the windshield? Maybe for you, your windshield is just shattered. Maybe your life is in shambles. There is incredible hope in the cross. It's not up to you to pick up all the pieces again and try to piece it together. You have a new windshield. Like God has given you a new life. Will you live into that this morning? I want to go ahead and invite the band to come up. We're going to end um, with a song. and uh, Go ahead and stand up with me, church, actually. Um, and as we're singing this song, I just want to encourage you to, as you're singing these words, I want them to mean something in your heart. When we sing, Lord, I come, I confess, I want you to view yourselves bringing you and whatever messes in your life before the Lord. Um, when you say, bowing here, I, I find my rest, I want you to view yourself bowing before the Lord, finding rest in the gospel. When you say, without you, I fall apart, I want you to see that, that without God, our, all of our windshields are shattered. Without the Lord, we have no hope in this life. When you say, our sin runs deep, I want you to call before your mind whatever sin the Lord's convicting you of this morning, whatever thing in your life um, is, is diving deep in your life. When our sin runs deep, but I want you to also remember His grace is more. 
His grace is more in your life. It is not up to you or me to rid our lives. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. Would you partner with the Holy Spirit in that? Finally, when we sing, Lord, I need you, he's our one defense, our righteousness. Would you remember that it is not your righteousness that saves you. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray that we would live into that reality this morning. God, it's a heavy sermon today, a sermon filled with conviction. I know for me, the past week as I've studied this, God, I'm filled with conviction. Filled with areas that, that, God, I need to come to you and ask for your cleansing. And, Lord, would you please give us strength, give us power. God, I pray that our church in 30, 40, 50 years would be a church that is uncompromised. Would be a church that has clung to Jesus, that has ended well. Lord, I pray that every believer in this room would take heed lest we fall. That we would end our race with perseverance, clinging to Jesus, striving to live holy lives. God, let it be our cry that, 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 that Jesus is our Lord, that he has died for us, that we are cleansed because of his righteousness. So, Lord, we love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Mm-hmm.